Well, Merry Christmas. Great to see you here, church family. And if you are a guest, a special welcome to you. We're glad that you're here with us this morning, too. You're going to need a copy of God's Word. Make your way to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 8 is where we're going to be. We started this series called Christmas Lights last week. And if you remember, we were looking at these passages in the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, 8, and 9, um, at very familiar passages for us. Um, we hear them in songs. We've seen them on Christmas cards. We've seen them in art. Uh, it's just around. Look at verses like, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. You shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then another verse that we read last week, Unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given. Uh, but the importance for us, going back into the series again, is remembering the context. Because these promises that we re- read last week and that I just read, these are the Christmas lights. These are the light in the midst of the darkness. And we talked about it last week that there is deep darkness at the time that Isaiah is writing these words to God's people. If you remember, we, we talked about it. It's, it's a time where there's political instability. They're about to be invaded. There's nations that are camping outside of their, their nation about to come in. And so there's political instability going on. And then there's this wide spread anxiety and fear in the nation. And with political instability and anxiety and filling the hearts of the people, God speaks these promises of Christmas, these promises of hope, these lights in the midst of darkness. Now, we're going to see the same thing today in chapter 8, where you're going to see the darkness, but at the same time you're going to see this glimpse of light from the Word of God. So you follow along with me as I read Isaiah chapter 8 will be in verse 11. It says, For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, and he warned me not to walk in the way of the people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that the people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts shall honor him as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many will stumble over it. They'll fall and be broken. It shall be a snare and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who's hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, this is the people asking of Isaiah, inquire of the medians and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not the people inquire of their God? Should they, not in, should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God. And turn their faces upward. They will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into a thick darkness. 
but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made a glorious way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Pray with me. Mighty God, the light of the world, we earnestly ask for you to speak to our hearts and our minds through your word today. As we open it, as we meditate on it, I ask that you would give us a a quicker understanding of spiritual things. God, give us a greater desire to, to know your truth and then a fuller understanding of your promises that we would have hope in the darkness. Now, as we unpack God's word this morning, let me just invite you to silently pray and to ask that God would speak to you this morning, that God would give you right fear, a secure hope, and everlasting light. Would you pray in this time of silence right now and ask God to speak to you? Lord Jesus, may you be glorified today through your truth, through your word. God, may you be glorified as you strengthen believers. And Lord, would you be glorified as you seek and save those who are lost. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, Yogi Berra, who is uh, one of the most iconic uh, baseball players, a Hall of Famer, was a catcher for the New York Yankees, the best team in baseball. We all know that, right? He was known for making humorous statements throughout his career that really kind of built a legacy that went beyond his baseball career. And so he would say these humorous statements, and, um, and many of them have stuck with me. And I just wanted to share some with you this morning, because if you stop and think about some of the things they said, they're, they're one, humorous, but they're a little head-scratching in, in what he said. But he said one of the things, you can observe a lot by watching. True statement, Right? <laughs> Baseball is 90% mental, and the other half is physical. And he said, the future ain't what it used to be. No, it is not, right? The future is no longer the future, right? A nickel ain't worth a dime anymore. He said that. He said, make sure you always go to people's funerals, otherwise they won't come to yours. And he said, uh, nobody goes to that place anymore because it's too crowded, like, what? I mean, things that you hear and you think about. And then one of his famous statements, he said, I never said most of the things that I said. Right? But one of the ones that he said that has stuck with me over the years uh, is, he said, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. When you come to a fork in the road, take it. Right? And the reason why I say all of that is because his last point, when you come to a fork in the road, take it, is what Isaiah did for us last week. Last week, Isaiah said, you're either going to stand firm in your faith or you're going to shake in fear. He's like, there's a fork in the road. You choose the path, right? There's a fork in the road. You take it. And Isaiah is going to do the same thing three times in this passage that I just read. 
He's going to walk us up to the signpost and say, here's the fork in the road. You choose. You decide. Where, what are you going to take? You've got to take something. You can't stay there. You've got to move forward. And the first thing he's going to challenge us to do, the first kind of fork in the road, is we will either have sinful fear or holy fear. We will have sinful fear or holy fear. Now, as, as God comes to Isaiah to share this word with him, it says in verse 11 that he comes with a strong hand. Now, the reason why that's so beautiful is it highlights the power of God and the personal nature of God. See, as he comes to Isaiah, he comes, he comes with his hand, kind of comes and places his hand on the, the shoulder of Isaiah, and he speaks this truth to Isaiah that there's a, there's a decision to be made. There's a fork in the road. There's people that are fearing in their sin, and there's some that are trusting in their holy fear. But he leans in and puts his hand around Isaiah. And that is the personal nature of our God, that he is Emmanuel, God with us, that he's a personal God that doesn't pull back or lean away. He leans in and brings comfort. And yet, in verse 11, it tells us that his hand is strong. His hand is mighty. His, the God that speaks these truths to us is a trustworthy God, the Lord God Almighty, who's not just weak and frail, just kind of leaning in and patting us on the back. No, his hand comes with might and with strength. So it is powerful, but it's also personal. So let's Listen up. He tells us in verse 11 that he warns us not to, to walk in the way of the people, not to work, walk in the way of a world. Why, what, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with the way the world walks? He tells us that they are fearful people. He tells us in verse 12, don't fear like they fear. It's called their fear. These are people not following God. And so when the dangers of the darkness and the brokenness of this world threaten them, they experience this great anxiety, this great fear in their heart and in their mind. And God is saying it's not that way with believers. It shouldn't be that way with those that are following them. We shouldn't be filled with anxiety, but we should be filled with faith. Now the reason why I, I, I kind of label this subpoint a, a, a sinful fear it's because a fear like this ultimately comes out of a heart of unbelief. In verse 12, it says, don't call conspiracy all that the people call conspiracy. See, God has come and given them these Christmas lights, these promises that a king would come, that the prince of peace would come and bring peace to their, to their world, but also to their souls. When people respond to that, not with, we're going to trust the Lord, but with unbelief. We don't know if God's going to do that. We don't know if we can trust his strong and mighty hand. And so we're going to choose fear instead. And the headlines that are going through all the, the news and media in Judah are all saying that God has forsaken us. There's no hope for us. We're going to be invaded. What are we going to do? So all this fear, all this anxiety is pouring into the hearts of people. And it's rooted in their unbelief in the promises of God. Let us trust not in what man is saying, but what God has said. That's what Isaiah is trying to get us to grasp. When we refuse to trust in God's plan and God's provision, we will find fear, a sinful fear. You see, this is what's going on at this time in history. 
these people think that another nation, having them as an ally, is more security than having the king of heaven on their side. And you fast forward roughly 700 years, and you find the same distrust, you find the same sinful fear arise in the disciples of Jesus. Jesus actually said multiple times to the disciples, why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Their fear is based in their sinfulness, in their selfishness, in their trust of their own abilities and their own powers. And so they quake in fear. And yet Jesus is saying, no, don't let your faith be little. Trust in the Lord. You see, the less their faith is, the greater their sinful fear is. But the greater their fear of the Lord is, the less their fear of the world is. Still to this day, we have fear and anxiety in our hearts of different things that happen in our dark world, in our broken world. And our fear and our anxiety of our heart is a measuring stick for how close we are to God. The farther we move away from God and our sinful fear, more anxiety is going to bubble up, right? The closer we are leaning into the Lord and trusting in Him, the more security and peace we will find in our heart. So listen to your heart in the sense of, is there great anxiety there? Because that's telling you, you are far from God. You are far from Him. Is there a sense of, of calmness and peace? And you're drawing near, trusting in Him. Trusting in Him. Another reason why this is a sinful fear is because it lies in its excess. And what I mean by that is that we fear simple things, small things, far more than we should. We give far too much credit to these simple fears of the world. We look around and behind every bush is a bear, right? We've made something small, something extremely anxious. Behind every petty trouble, there's fear that stirs within us and it frightens us. Our fear, when it's a sinful fear, will exceed the value and the merit of its cause. Sinful fear, what it does is it belittles God and it exalts our trouble. That's what's happening at this time. And God in his goodness and his grace gives these promises to us, shows his faithfulness to us, saying, don't belittle me. No, exalt me in your heart and you will find security. Belittle your troubles because they are nothing in the sight of an almighty God with a strong hand. Isaiah is challenging us to do that, to exalt God in our hearts and in our minds. And to resist the sinful fear. Now, he didn't tell us not to fear. In verse 13, he's actually going to tell us to fear, but he's going to tell us to fear the right thing. And this is the fork in the road, right? You can quake and shake like the world in this sinful fear, or you can have a holy fear. He tells us in verse 13, let the Lord be your fear. Let him be your dread. See, God's people are not without fear. God's people aren't ignorant to the brokenness of this world or the darkness of this world. It is said darkness and gloom over and over again in this passage I just read. God is well aware of it. Isaiah sees it. 
But he says, don't fear the darkness. Walk in the light. Let him be your fear. The way that they see it is that we should dare not overlook God. When we look at the darkness of this world and and be overwhelmed by it, no, let's not overlook what God would be doing. There's a fear in us, but we look and we see that there's a God in this world that is working even in the swirling events around us. In the midst of the darkness, if we can trust in the Lord, He's a stabilizing force for us. See, holy fear is our treasure. It's not a torment like sinful fear. It's an ornament for our soul. It's beauty and perfection. It's not the unhappiness of sinful fear. This holy fear is prescribed as the antidote for us against our sinful fears. Holy fear? Holy fear will devour worldly fears. Righteous fear? We'll, we'll gobble up that sinful fear in our souls. Now, the application for this, as we consider our ways, the application is kind of threefold. And I don't have to, time to unpack all these, but I would just say if you really struggle with an anxious fear, a sinful fear, there's a great book, Triumphing Over Sinful Fear. It's written by a Puritan, John Flavel. Great little book. It's short. And these application points I'm going to share with you are loosely based upon his book. But would it really, if this is a struggle for you and you're in sinful fear, trying to move to holy fear, then read that book, but also write down these applications and think deeply on them. And each one of these applications I'm going to share with you starts with understand and believe. And that's intentional because you can understand something and not believe it. Not like really hold tight to it. But we have to both understand this truth and then to believe it deeply within our soul. So the first application, if we want to remove that sinful fear from our heart and to pursue a holy fear, is we have to understand and believe rightly about God. About God. And if we didn't have any other passages in Scripture, even what we read in this one would tell us plenty about God that we could spend the rest of eternity meditating on and thinking on. But it tells us that he's the Lord of hosts in verse 13. And that he is holy, so honor him as holy. So how do we do that? What does that mean? As we think of God being Lord and being Lord over armies, these these hosts, as him being holy, how do we honor him in that way? Well, one, you can go back just two chapters. Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah is brought into the, 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 the presence of God. And he sees the Lord God Almighty. He hears the angels singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah's there, and his response is not, wow, wow. His response, the holiness of God is, whoa, woe is me, for I am a sinner. This is how you honor God as holy. When you see his holiness, yes, there's a wow factor. There's an awe factor. But it should remind us of who we are. We are not holy. We are sinners in need of a holy God to save us. And it's amazing because what Isaiah does when he's standing there, the first sin that comes to his mind that he needs to be forgiven of, he said, I am a man of unclean lips. Let that settle in a second. This is the prophet of God. The one who God is speaking, who's speaking on behalf of God. 
And he looks at his life, and the first thing he sees is most sinful is the thing that God is using most, his lips. He's like, my lips are sinful, Lord. In Isaiah 6, it says that God comes down and he atones for Isaiah's sins. Oh, if we want to honor God as holy, then let's look and let's see his holiness and see our sinfulness and come before him in woe. Oh, God, would you be merciful and gracious to me? For I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. And then God in his grace and his mercy comes down and atones for our sins. And this is how we rightly understand and rightly believe the truths of God. Another application we find in that verse 13 where it calls him the Lord of hosts. Regard him as holy. This Lord of hosts is talking about the power and might of God, that he is over all the armies. And not just angels' armies, every army of the earth. God has power and strength over them all. So may we dare not treat God as if he's weak and frail and fragile. He is not. He's the Lord God Almighty. May we not live lives that people look at us and think our God is weak and worthless. No, he is strong, and let's honor him as holy. But what sinful fear will do is sinful fear will lead us to lift up people as holy, people as set apart, people as more important. And this leads us to the second application. Let us understand and believe rightly about people. Many times our sinful fear starts with the fear of man, not the fear of God. We value what other people think of us far more than what we think about the Heavenly Father thinking of us. You know what? When we live in this kind of fear, this is a terrible place. Living night and day in the fear of men is one of the worst judgments you can have. But living all the day in the fear of God is one of the sweetest mercies that could ever come to us. It brings light in the darkness. And the scriptures teach us this over and over again. The book of Proverbs are filled with all these kind of wise sayings of how we fear the Lord and choose to follow him instead of fearing man. It helps us understand this fork in the road and why we should rightly choose to fear God. It says that the fear of man actually shortens our days, but the fear of God prolongs them. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 27. The fear of man is a fountain of sin, mischief, and misery, but the fear of God is a fountain of life. Proverbs 14, 27. The fear of man causes us to run to evil. Proverbs 29, verse 25. But the fear of God causes us to depart from evil. Proverbs 16, verse 6. When we move away from the shelter of the fear of the Lord, Proverbs 27, verse 8 says that we are like birds wandering from our nests in the time of a storm. This is what God is highlighting here. See the fork in the road. Choose the right fear that would bring security and comfort to your heart. Now, as we exalt the fear of the Lord in our hearts more than man, one of the ways we're going to do that is by understanding and believing the promises of God. Understanding and believing the promises of God. 
There are so many comforts offered to us in the promises of God, and yet we completely miss them because we aren't listening to them. We're not meditating on them. We're not thinking on them. And not just comforts found in the promises of God, even the reality that there are doors of escape found in the promises of God. These things that we're enchained to, that we're addicted to. Proverbs, or uh, rather 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, tells us that when we're tempted, that God provides a way of escape. And many of us aren't even reading the scriptures to know what those ways are to resist the temptations that are placed before us. And so, yes, let's cling to those beautiful, faithful promises of God, but let's also realize that we can resist the temptation with the truth of God's word. This will help us to run from sinful fear and to trust a holy, mighty God. If we could thoroughly understand and believe in the power of God's hand to defend us and the tenderness of his heart to help us and the faithfulness we find in his promises to comfort us, it would steady our hearts in the midst of darkness. It would give us courage in the midst of deep gloom and anxiousness. So which will you choose? Sinful fear or a holy fear? The second fork that we see in the road in this passage is we will either find God as a sanctuary or as a stumbling stone. We will find him as a sanctuary or as a stumbling stone. In verse 14, it starts with the, the beauty and hope of the security of the Lord. It says that if we put our trust in him, our faith in him, our fear in him, we will find him as a sanctuary. Now, sanctuary is not a place of solitude where it's like, if I can just leave these behind, then I'll just be by myself, and I won't have to deal with the darkness in this world. I won't have to deal with people, none of those things. That's not what it means when it says sanctuary. This word sanctuary is the same word they would use in the Old Testament to talk about a place that God's people would come to gather and worship, the, the, the tabernacle where they would come and praise and worship God, the place where they would come and be reminded that their sins are atoned for, their sins are forgiven. This is a place they would come and they would worship in community with other believers. This is a place where the presence of God would dwell. Emmanuel, God with us. And he's saying, as we place our faith in Christ, this is what we find. We find a place of security and peace and refuge. We can leave behind these sinful anxieties and we can come to a place of peace like we have never known in our lives. It is a dismal place to be when we live for ourselves and reject the security and the sanctuary of the Lord. See, if we live like that, we will have wearisome days that lead to wearisome nights. And some of y'all know what this is, to be so tired you wish for night, and yet when you get into bed you find very little rest because the same fear and anxiety followed you to sleep that night. So you lay in bed hoping for the daylight to come, thinking that that's going to give you hope again, and then you wake up and you look and long for rest again because you're tired and you're exhausted. It's because the Lord is not your sanctuary. All that you would come to him and find him your trust, your peace, your refuge, your rock, your foundation. If we don't, 
then that rock will become a stone of stumbling instead of a house of refuge. That's what he tells us in verse 14. Now, what's fascinating to me about this is this this language that's used at the end of verse 14 that this rock of stumbling or this stone that you're going to find, verse 15, it tells us that many shall stumble over it. They shall fall and be broken, shall be snared and taken away. Now, what you see is that Jesus, as he comes onto the scene, God with man, Emmanuel, he's a sanctuary for some. He comes and he heals. He brings peace. He provides what our hearts deeply long for. Jesus does those things. And yet there's a, another group of people that don't come to Jesus as their sanctuary. They come to Jesus and they stumble over him. They don't believe that he's the Lord. They don't believe that he's Emmanuel, God with us. They want to live their will and their way and their selfishness. And so they reject Jesus. And yet their rejection of Jesus didn't make Jesus go away. Didn't make Jesus disappear. No, they just stumbled over it. And Jesus said of himself in Matthew chapter 21, verse 44, the one who falls on this stone, speaking of himself, will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus is quoting Isaiah chapter 8 saying, I am either your sanctuary or I'm your stumbling stone. I'm one of those two. Which is he to you? Jesus is the fulfillment of these very verses. And you need to listen to me. The reality is, it doesn't matter if you don't believe in God or not. It does not matter if you deny his existence. It doesn't keep him from existing when you deny it. In the same way, if there's a rock in front of me, if there's a stone in front of me, and I deny that stone, it's not there, it's not there, it's not there, I'm still going to trip over it and fall, right? Because my denial doesn't change that stone. Your denial of God won't change the reality that he is there. And he'll be that sanctuary for you if you trust and believe in him. It'll be that stone that you'll continually fall over and trip. The great military leader, Napoleon, discovered this truth. On the eve of the Battle of Waterloo, he was preparing for battle, and he got all his generals together, and he said, guys, I want to be able to enjoy my afternoon tomorrow. So what I want to do is I want to be able to start this battle early in the morning and be done by 2 o'clock. By 2 p.m., I want this battle done. And as he spoke in that pride and that arrogance, one of his generals reminded him, man proposes, God deposes which is just a riff on Proverbs 16, verse 9. But Napoleon responded to his general and said, No, Napoleon proposes, and Napoleon deposes. Then the battle began, and began to rain, and those big cannons that he trusted in to win the battle got stuck in the mud, and he got crushed. As he lost, he was exiled to an an island where he took up in his spare time, he had plenty of it, in his spare time he started reading the Bible, started reading about the God that he denied, the one that he stumbled over, and he started to take seriously this God. Now either we will stand on him as our sanctuary or we will stumble over him as a rock, but denying him does not mean he doesn't exist. 
So on a dark and an anxious day, will you stumble over him or will you build your life on him? I plead with you that you would build your life on him. The last fork in the road that we need to talk about in this passage is that we will either plunge into thick darkness or we will bask in the light. We will plunge into thick darkness or we will bask in the light. And you might be hearing those thinking, those are two massive extremes, Ryan. Like, is there not some middle ground? Like, is there not like a gray area and this is like kind of where I can walk and where I can live? And this is where we want to take. We, we, we come to a fork in the road and we're like, we want to go in the middle. And you can't. You've got to choose one or the other. And the people in Isaiah's day, they wanted to try to find some middle ground. Wait a second, you want us to come to this God as Lord and listen to what he says for our lives and change our lives, put all our trust in him? That's what you're telling me to do? Like, I don't want to do that. I want to kind of hold on to my life and let me be the Lord of my life and what I want to do. But you know what? I see what you're saying. Like, the spirituality side, that's a good thing. Like, I just like to sprinkle some spirituality in my life. And that's what they're doing in Isaiah's day. Isaiah brings these promises of God to the people, and instead of trusting in them, verse 19 says, you know what, Isaiah, thanks for that little word from this, like, this God, but can you inquire of like mediums and necromancers? Like, Can you talk to these people that will talk to dead people? And then God's word says, should not the people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? No, we go to the living God to give guidance for the living. But the people want some spirituality, but some spirituality they can control. They want a life coach. They don't want a Lord of their life. And Isaiah is saying there's no middle ground. No, you come to the Word of God and you trust in the Word of God. So in verse 20, responding to these people, he says, to the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this Word, the promises of God, the things that he said, it's because they have no dawn. They have no light. There's darkness in their soul. Not just around them as they look at the broken world. There's darkness in their soul. You know, we cling to the Word of God. We trust in His truth. This is what we need. God has graciously given us His Word to lead and to guide us. He's graciously given us His Word that we might know His way. But He didn't just graciously give us His Word He's also graciously given us light. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9. It says that there will be no gloom for those who are in anguish. Why? Because light is coming. Verse 2, the one who walked in darkness, they've seen a great light. Those who've dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. This is a sure hope. These words are written in the past tense in the language of Hebrew. It's written in the past tense because there, there's so much faith in this promise of God that it seems like an immediate reality. Not because it's immediately happened, because it hasn't yet, but because it's immediately evident to their eye of faith. So as believers are walking in darkness, they've already seen the great light of hope to sustain them in the darkness. Now, how do we get this light? Did you notice this? The people who are in this deep darkness, the people who are in this, this broken world, this great light has what? Shone on them. 
Did you notice that? That's extremely important. This light has shone on them. They didn't discover the light. They didn't, they didn't emerge out from within their, their pure good hearts, and here's the light. No, the, the light has shone from above on them. What we need to get out of this darkness is the grace of illumination. The grace that God would give us. You see, if we wait in this dark world, searching this world for answers, which is what you find the people are trying to do, then they find in verse 22, distress and darkness and gloom and anguish. And then they're thrust into the deep darkness. The light is not found in this broken world. The light is found as Christ shines it upon us. He shines it upon us. This passage is showing us how we get this light. It's not by us binding together that we find the light. It's not by us having some piece of technology that's going to improve our hearts that we're going to find the light. It will be illuminated from heaven. It comes with, with gentleness as a child at Christmas, the light of the world. If you want to bask in the light instead of being thrust into deep darkness, then you have to come to the light of the world. That's how Jesus defined himself, that he was the light of the world. You have to come through Jesus admitting that he is Lord, not just a life coach for you, but he's the Lord of your life. Believing that he is this light and confessing the sins of darkness from your heart to him. And just like with Isaiah, he will atone for your sins because he is a gracious God illuminating the light on us. As we close, Napoleon sat there on that island of exile and as he read the pages of scripture, he wrote this. He said, Alexander the Great, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself founded empires. But upon what foundation did these creations depend? They depend on our genius. They depended on force. He said, but Jesus alone founded his empire on love. And to this day, millions would die for him. What Napoleon is saying and what he was writing is what we need is not military might to bring security to our hearts and to remove anxiousness. What we need to bring peace to our heart is not brilliant genius of our minds or self-help books. What we need is the meek and mild child in the manger. And on the first Christmas, there was a man in Luke chapter 1 named Zechariah. And Zechariah had been told by God that before he died, he would get to see the light of the world. That he would get to see the Messiah who would come to live the perfect life and to die for our sins in order to forgive us of all of our sins. And Isaiah was frantically always looking for the coming Messiah. And at the end of Luke chapter 1, as he sees Jesus, this is what he proclaims. Because of the tender mercy of God... Whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. One of my favorite titles of Christ. He is the sunrise. 
to give us light to those who sit in darkness. He's quoting Isaiah 8. And in the shadow of death to guide our feet to the way of peace. You know how you bask in the light? You come to Christ. The sunrise, the light who has shone on us who have sat in the darkness of our sin in order to forgive us. Let's bask in the goodness and grace of Jesus Christ. Bow your heads with me. Lord, Christmas is ultimately about a decision. It's about the decision that you made to bring light into darkness. To step out of heaven and to become Emmanuel, God with us. Now, this Christmas is an invitation for us to step into the light that you have brought to us. Lord, we confess we can't make it, we can't earn it. It's a gracious gift that you have offered to us. So, Lord, I I pray and I ask that you would help us not to to fear others more than we fear you. May we not fear what friends might think about us if we trust in you and we follow you and are obedient to you. May we not fear the possible shame that family might bring on us for trusting in you, for, for coming from darkness into the light. Lord, instead, give us a deep, rich hope and fear of you that we would come and find forgiveness. Give us that right fear, that fear that will lead to us finding you as a sanctuary, a, a place of peace, and we can place our faith so that we wouldn't find you as a snare or a stumbling block. Lord, let us, as we trust in you and believe in you, reflect that Christmas light. Or may we reflect you, the light of the world, as we live our lives, telling others of this hope we could have in you. God, may we respond to your truth well, to the glory of your name, and to our good. Amen. Every Sunday, intentionally or unintentionally, we respond to the word of God. We try to lead you to respond through singing and praising this Lord God Almighty. And so we're going to do that now. But we're also going to respond through our generosity to give. We give because our God is generous. Though he was rich, he became poor to save us. And then we're going to respond by praying. As a church family, let's respond to the good news of Christ now. Let's stand and let's sing.